I think that most people today don't really realize to what extent we're living in an anti-male culture. Uh, I think it started around the second wave of feminism, right, in the 60s and the 70s. And the general sentiment was we need to get women ahead in school, in the workplace, in the world. But underneath all of that was a very zero-sum anti-male philosophy, right? It's women's turn, but that also means that men need to take a seat and to let others get ahead for a change. There's something very destructive about that sentiment. So I'm really interested. You've done a lot of amazing work uncovering this anti-male culture and you know, the extent to which some men find themselves in really difficult situations where they're essentially powerless. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found around this anti-male culture and what got you interested in exploring it in the first place? Um, I look up didn't mean to start working to help men. I started off many years ago absolutely inspired by doing something for women. And I discovered the women's movement and this was going to be my thing. And I was a, a sex therapist at the time and I, so I wanted to improve sex for women, uh, give them a, a chance of having a better sex life. And along, along the way, so I was out in the media this is back in the 1970s in Australia, a long, long time ago, um, talking about sex and started to listen to men. And everywhere I went, I would be bailed up somewhere listening to this guy's erection problem or whatever it was, the endless issues that were raised with me. And when men talk about this really intimate part of their lives, they tend to end up telling you other stuff. They talk about what else is going wrong for them. And so I started to hear about the very real issues facing men. I mean, for instance, in the family courts, men losing contact with their kids, many tragedies that are going on day by day in this culture, um, where there's been this enormous shift in power and men are absolutely finding themselves on the outer. And so I started to champion men, which is a good way to make, find yourself very unpopular. <laughs> You know, this was, I suppose, I was sort of the 1980s, something like that. And it was really fascinating to me that any topic you took, that, you know, most of the journalists were females who were writing about social issues and then inevitably talked about women's wants and women's needs and what, you know, why we're missing out and how much talked about the other side of the fence, which was the men. And so I started to do that. And I not only gained a lot of support from men, uh, but also there's a lot of women, an increasing group of women who are really concerned about what's happening to the men in their lives. Men, most women, luckily, have men in their lives they care about, brothers, fathers, you know, sons, and they're watching those women. Um, to, to, and they really resent the endless male bashing that's going on. Uh, and they're very nervous about raising sons in such an anti-male culture. So I think at a community level, there's great concern about the constant um, pressures to advantage women at the expense of men. And that wasn't what, you know, those of us who called ourselves feminists, that wasn't what we signed up to. We wanted a level playing field. We didn't want men bashed over the head and constantly denigrated uh, and women pushed forward uh, 
at every possible opportunity. I mean, people have watched this happening in so many areas. Uh, years ago, I used to write a lot about boys' education and what, you know, when we noticed, as you said, I mean, one of the great things was watching women, girls take their place in the world. You know, the, all of these programs were encouraging girls to, to go for it, to do science, to do maths, not to hold back, not, to, you know, um, not to be conformed to, the, to a female, a view of how females were supposed to behave. And we saw these incredible results coming through. But parents started to write to me saying, well, we went to my, my child's speech night or, you know, presentation night or, and it was only girls winning all the prizes. And they were noticing it was the boys filling the remedial classes, the boys dropping out from school, the boys not finishing school. And so it went on. And the gap was why this was back in the 1990s, I suppose. I, I had this conversation with a senior bureaucrat female. And I said to her, what will happen if the gaps keeps widening, get widening and we see more and more men, more and more boys dropping out, more and more boys doing badly? And she says, we'll wait 2,000 years and analyze the results very, very carefully. And she gave a big oh, laugh. Wow. Oh, it's only a joke. Well, of course, it wasn't a joke. I mean, that was 20 years ago and they've done nothing. The, the gap widens all the time. I don't know what the American figures are looking like. But the guy widens all the time in Australia between males and females, and males are now the most disadvantaged when it comes to education in Australia. That's just right. Well, absolutely. What I find amazing about this is that, you know, in some areas, I think that the average person who hears, you know, the feminist jargon of we need to get women ahead, they have no problem with that, right? They're, th that doesn't seem like a bad thing. That seems like a very, um, you know, very virtuous uh, goal. Yeah. But I think that what we don't realize is that a lot of people who were uh, leading these movements, of, you know, especially in the 60s and 70s, you know, these second wave feminists, a lot of them had very strong anti-man sentiments, yeah. you know, on the personal level. They didn't like men and they were happy to see men getting behind. And I yeah. think that the celebration, this promotion, uh, this Scheidenfreude almost, you know, this uh, joy and the sorrow of others, uh, when it comes to men, especially little boys, you know, and the fact that you do see them falling behind in school uh, and just losing that motivation, you know, that drive, that um, competitiveness, which is so important for for boys and young men, and we're just extinguishing it. So I think in terms of the, the school component, it's interesting to note, and uh, you've mentioned this quite often, that uh, it's very feminized today. Yeah. Right? You have female teachers, you have uh, a teaching style that makes sense for girls mostly, you know, sitting all day, being very obedient, listening to the teacher. That's something that girls have an easier time with. You know, nobody likes to sit all day. But boys really can't handle it. They're so rambunctious, uh, especially in their earlier years and in the teenage years when they get that surge of testosterone. And they're medicated instead, right? Yeah. They're given uh, ADD medicine, which basically uh, just kills your, your play circuit uh, and makes you have tunnel vision uh, and makes you depressed at the end of the day. <laughs> so uh, it's a real shame. Oh, it's a real it's shame. It's an absolute tragedy what's happening. 
to boys at our schools. And uh, I, I might have raised two sons. And my, my younger son was a bit of a struggle. I mean, he was classic. He, he, he couldn't sit still for one minute. And I spent, I remember all these years I spent sitting under his um, basketball hoop while he threw baskets and I tested him on his French verbs. But I really, <laughs> really discovered. Oh, that's lovely. He, yeah. he learned much better if he could you know, have a bit of motion in there. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I but, bet, you know, I bet. That whole business of how do we adapt to men, to boys' learning styles is something that periodically has got a bit of attention. We had uh, major government inquiries into why boys were doing so badly under various governments in Australia. And they came up with all these ideas. We have to give, you know, break the school periods up and give them more time for, you know, exercise and so on and, and get away from all this cooperative learning and give boys chance to, and boys often do better than girls in studying for tests and being tested periodically or whatever it is. I mean, and those more traditional ways of, of learning and, and testing actually appeal to many male more than that right. they do to female. And, and so they, they went into all the ways we, they could think of to try to help boys. And, you know, the government institutes all these new policies. And then the, we have a change of government. We go to a, what I would regard as a more left-wing government. The conservative governments were the ones who were making these sorts of changes. And the Labor governments aren't remote. What, you know, our left-wing government is remotely interested. So it all gets tossed out again. I mean, it's been, and the same happened in Britain. Britain made big progress in boys' education and then had to change government yeah. and it all went backwards. I mean, it's, if you've been around for long enough, it's pretty depressing, really. Interesting. Yeah, yeah you've seen these cycles, you know, come and go. Um, but I hope, I hope that people are waking up today because I think that we've reached such an extreme uh, that it's, uh, it's, it's hard uh, to ignore it. And one of the things that you've said, which I really agree with, is that men and women are connected. You know, you have brothers, you have father, you have sons. And at the end of the day, you want men to be healthy and successful and fulfilled uh, because our lives are integrated. So we yeah. can't, we, we're not part of this class. You know, there's a, a Marxist uh, undertone uh, with yeah. these things where the woman class, you know, the class of women, we need to band together and to rise against our oppressors, the men. And yeah. I, don't, I don't see it that way. And I don't think that's, uh, you know, a helpful strategy uh, to yeah. get, uh, you know, to deal I with know. the people oh, in our lives. Nice. And, but the trouble is we've had, I mean, we've, we're in, our, in, Australia, in our Australia, which of course is the country I know best, we've, we've seen women, in, now in key positions in all the major institutions. I did an analysis of our, our government organisations, you know, the public service, and amazing. This department had 70% women, this department had 60, 80, whatever. Every, almost every department had a, had, women were absolutely dominating and particularly increasingly at the higher levels. And that'd be fine if they made policies for everybody. But you see the results in public policy. And so we have uh, six out of the eight people who kill themselves every day in Australia are male. And yet three, I'm uh, sorry, four of the five beneficiaries of our suicide prevention policies are female. 
They won't even, uh, our national suicide bodies won't even name male as a disadvantaged group. I mean, it's just absolutely bizarre. And almost everybody on those committees are female. And they just sit there and ignore this massive yeah. elephant in the room. Which is, we, I recently took part in this tragic event in front of our parliament um, where we had um, boots laid out on the lawns that, that lead up to Parliament House, M, a boot for, to represent every man who's killed himself in Australia this year, an empty boot. It was really tragic. But, of course, you can't get any media coverage. The media is totally controlled by, you know, the feminist narrative and feminist editors and so on here. And so hard, you can't get any coverage for that sort of event. Um, you can't get anybody stat, talk, writing articles about what's happening with suicide prevention. Our national, um, we have a, a big national body that gathers, you know, the statistics, uh, the Bureau of Statistics. And this year they took coroner's report data uh, to show that it's actually the major cause of suicide in this country, as in true as most countries, is family breakup. It's related to family law. It's related to men losing their children, losing their homes, oh, wow. you know, and all the consequences of these ghastly divorces we're seeing everywhere where, where men have so little power. And, and that's the major. And here it is in black and white in our statistics, and it's still being ignored, and the media won't touch it. What do you that's do with it? That's incredible. Mm. Well, you've been doing amazing work, really shedding light on what happens to men in these situations. Because, and I've had men comment on my videos where, uh, in a situation where a woman can call the police and say that her husband abused her, even though he didn't. And then, you know, three cops show up and take him to jail. You know, who has power in the situation? Um, that's a good question. And I think that there's quite an abuse of power from the direction of women in these situations because the the system is so geared towards believing women and assuming that the man was abusive and really uh you know we've almost wiped out uh innocent before proven guilty and which yeah. was a fundamental pillar of our justice system. So what have you found in these situations of divorce and, you know, custody battles? I'm sure you've seen uh, really horror stories. So tell us a little bit. Mm. I mean, I mean, look, we must say that that issue of domestic violence and accusations of domestic violence, I mean, this came from a very important place. Of course, there are dangerous men. There are women living with dangerous men. And our whole society, of course, wanted to change that, wanted to protect women, wanted to give them somewhere to go, refuges to escape to if they were in that situation. And the feminists very rightly realised, I mean, this is a fantastic issue for them. Do you know the story of Erin Pizzi? Erin no. Pizzi's a fame. Oh, you should interview her one day. She's a wonderful woman. She just received a, an honour from the British government, just a New Year honour, so only a few weeks ago, um, for her work on domestic violence. She was the first person to set up what we call a refuge. I think you use a different term. Mm. You know, a shelter, somewhere to go. Right, right. She set up the first shelter in Britain for women escaping from violence. And one of the things she immediately found is when the women that she did, you know, huge numbers of people contacting her, families, mothers and children 
arriving there. But one of the things she quickly realized is some of these women were violent and they were violent to other people in, the, in those shelters and violent to their children. So it's not just men who are violent. And Erin, from day one, started to speak out about this. She actually grew up with a violent mother, so she knew about this. And she started to say violence is a two-way street. The evidence is that women are just as likely to be violent as men in domestic relationships. And she had death threats. Her dog was killed. Wow. I mean, wow. because what was happening in Britain at that time is she gradually set up more and more shelters. She was getting a lot of money, government support. And the feminists in Britain took over that, what she calls the domestic violence industry. They pushed her out. And she spent nearly 50 years out in public saying, talking about what's happening and talking about the research showing violence is two-way and women often instigate violence. And we can't just pretend this is only a male problem. But of course, that's right. exactly what we're doing. And our media right. persistently presents that narrative of men, men are always the villains. If a, a policeman that goes to a home called out for a call about violence, even if it's the man who makes that call, the chances are he's the one who'll be removed. He doesn't get believed. Uh, and our official policies always uh, you know, push the police into arresting men and not women. Um, and I have had police contact me from police officers from all over Australia contact me who are really alarmed. They don't want to impose to have to enforce unjust laws. Uh, it really upset, not, not all police, but there are many police officers out there who really object to what's going on. They don't want, you know, to have to respond to a phone call and they go along to a home and the woman makes an accusation for which there's absolutely no evidence and they're required to remove that man from the home. There's nothing they're allowed to do. And wow. if they end up saying, well, no, I think maybe she was the one who was violent, they'll find themselves in front of we have what we call magistrates who are local judges, and sometimes they'll reverse it and say, no, 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 it's the man who was violent. I mean, we've got a system where judges and, and, and courts in, at every level is prejudiced towards believe the women and men facing huge numbers of, of false allegations. And, you know, that's one of the issues and certainly leading to suicide. We've had suicide notes. We've had family. I've had family co contacting me saying, my, you know, this man was driven to despair. There was nothing he could do because she kept making these allegations. Many years ago, I had this man contact me and every time he thought he'd got through the next hurdle where he'd been to court and he proved that, you know, her, the allegation she'd made was false. She'd make another one. She could turn up the next week somewhere else and make another accusation. And he ended up holding the police at bay with a bow and arrow. I mean, he was driven. He was so desperate and he just didn't know what to do. And he ended up going to prison. But I'll never forget that call where he said, I'm in, you know, I'm in this house and the police are outside and I cannot deal with this anymore. You know, this stuff wow. just breaks your heart. What's going on for me? It really does. And, you know, as I was hearing you talk, I think that there's, I'll say it this way, there's a power dynamic that's shifting, right? I think that 
at the beginning of the feminist movement, there was a desire to protect women from violent men. Violent men exist, you know, in every population. There there is the percentage of men who can get violent and will, um, especially in domestic settings. So the fact that, you know, we wanted uh, as a society to make sure that women are protected in situations like that, that is an important work. I think that the pendulum has swung so drastically that today women have incredible power over men because of the system, how it's built. They have leverage. The fact that, you know, a young woman in an office can ruin her manager's life, basically. She can make accusations. Nothing had to have happened, but just that reputation destruction, you know, just throwing that bomb, that possibility. You know, how is his wife going to take it? How are his coworkers? Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, he's uh, put on leave. There's so many things that can happen. And, you know, in the case of uh, whether it's domestic violence or whether it's just divorce, whether two people aren't getting along anymore and she can have custody rights, even though he was a good father, you know, some people, their marriages don't work out. But the fact that we have a system that is now geared so much in favor of women Mm -hmm. and is affording women a leverage that's um, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I don't think that um, some women realize what power they have. And you have talked about this in all sorts of directions also with your um, politics of cleavage video, uh, which was very popular. But I think you really hit the nail on the head because the fact that, you know, women um, growing up, I guess, age 16, 17, 18, all of a sudden you have this power. You know, you're sexually attractive. You were a kid yesterday and all of a sudden grown men are looking at you and, you know, you're affording you attention. You have power all of a sudden. And in our culture today, we don't teach young women how to use it. They grow up, um, you know, all of a sudden having all of this power and many abuse it uh, in all sorts of ways. So I think that just having in our heads, you know, how do we construct a society that works for men and women and is geared towards the truth, you know, whether it's in a domestic violence case, really trying to get to the bottom of the situation. A lot of these cases, as you said, women uh, are often statistically more violent within relationships just because, you know, a girl can hit a guy and there's no real physical consequences. You know, she's not going to hurt him that badly, but she can uh, get her anger out, so to speak. Um, but, but, she can, but she can use a saucepan. She can use a knife. I mean, we, we had, we had. There are more drastic situations. You were saying, yeah, it's not just that. <laughs> I mean, women. If you look at the ambulance data, the emergency ward data, you can find um, physical injuries from women. Violent women are right up there, along with. I mean, mm-hmm. the statistics on domestic violence are really fascinating. Um, because we have an official survey that's, that's the, our big data source that shows if you ask people, have you experienced physical violence from your partner, it's less than 1% in Australia of present or previous partners. It's tiny. And that's, that's what we think of when we think of domestic violence. We don't think of 
emotional abuse. We don't think of financial abuse. I mean, the feminists managed to endless expand the definition of violence so that police have to turn up if a woman claims to be being emotionally abused. Well, that's not what the system was supposed to be about. It was supposed right. to be about protecting women who were at risk. Look and at how COVID. do you define yeah. emotionally abused? Right? How do you define emotional abuse? Oh, it's just crazy. But I, what I thought was fascinating was COVID because the day they announced the lockdown in Australia, the domestic violence industry was out there saying, oh, women are going to be locked up with dangerous men. You know, we have to have more money to protect them, blah, blah, blah. And we saw this roll out. I mean, America too, I was watching it there. You had exactly the same narrative that this was going to be really dangerous for women. In Australia, the domestic violence, I call them the industry, but the big bureaucracies running domestic violence in Australia got a 150% increase in their funding because of lockdown. And yet, even within the first six months, there was official data coming through showing in fact domestic violence incidents were going down. The police are reporting wow. less domestic violence, but they are so good at creating alarm, creating the idea that this problem is never ending, it never gets any better, you know, expanding the definition so that we can always say it's getting worse. You know, children, women are right. more at risk. So it, we've, we've got debanking now in Australia where you can report your partner for financial abuse and the banks have all announced they'll freeze his, 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 his um, accounts. You don't need wow. any evidence. You have to just claim he's financially abusing you. That is, that? So that is so extreme. That is so extreme. No, it's it's incredible because, you know, first of all, how do you define emotional abuse? How do you define financial abuse? And, yep. you know, you have pointed to a very interesting point here. The fact that the incentive system is structured in a way where the narrative around domestic violence affords more funding for these groups and these organizations. So keeping this narrative alive, that's aligned with their interests. It's it's really interesting and it explains why this narrative is, you know, blown out of proportion. Because if you're talking about 1%, you know, of the population, even engaging in any form of domestic violence, and if you open the hood and you realize that a lot of these couples, uh, you know, it goes both ways, then this is a different story. And, you know, I think, I think that a drawing alarm, and I think this is a... You know, women have a challenge where we are weaker physically, we are in more danger, obviously we're vulnerable, but the question is, how do we want to orient ourselves and conduct ourselves in the world to keep us safe and to keep us happy and to keep our relationships healthy? Uh, and I don't think that creating, uh, you know, an inquisition <laughs> of sorts around men because, you know, there are the violent men, but the average guy doesn't need to be abused in a divorce court in the way that most men are. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a real tragedy. And the fact that, you know, we don't realize how important fathers are for their children. There's so much in this, right? But, but it's just this general anti-man uh, no, kind of philosophy. But it's also about you know, right, how we're raising girls. I mean, I right. I grew up at this, when second wave feminism was just bursting out and it was so exciting. We were, we were powerful. We were going to be taking our place in the world. And we were, the barriers were breaking down to 
you know, we didn't have to be chaperoned anymore. We were allowed to stay up at late at night. We could, you know, one, and we were allowed to go out and take risks. And all of a sudden, we are back to women only being victims, girls being taught this is a really dangerous world. You have to be afraid of males. You have to be afraid of the boys in your class because they're potentially violent. I mean, it's such a terrible message to That's take really away male, point. female agency. And it's just hard for someone like that, me to believe that we've done that to girls, to teach them all to be fearful of men. Um, when we were just reveling in being allowed to do things alongside men as young women, you know? Right, right. I think that the story, this narrative kind of shifted, but it really did start with this freedom, with this independence, the sense of agency. And today, the story is, you know, you need to say thank you to all the women who came before and paved the way because mm -hmm. we fought the dangerous, dangerous men and afforded you all of these privileges. And now you need to appreciate it and, you know, stay, steer clear um, of all of these dangerous, violent men. And that's kind of the story that most women hear and how, uh, you know, don't let a man um, mansplain to you, right? If a man is trying to explain something, yeah. he must be patronizing you. And all of these, you know, ridiculous things of uh, how men take up too much space, right? You know, um, this joke about man spreading in yeah, the subways, yeah. you know, all, and there were, there were videos of women who uh, poured bleach on men randomly in the subway who mm. were, you know, just spreading their legs. I don't know if this was like a, well, a fake fake video or not. It seemed pretty real. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why men sit with their legs apart, which is to do with their anatomy. It's to do with what gets squashed if they don't. I mean, exactly, exactly. And, I, and, and, you know, this is going back to just human nature, how we're built, understanding the reality of our existence. And then figuring out what the best way is to, you know, conduct ourselves individually yes. and on a societal level, uh, but ignoring these realities, ignoring what men need, ignoring what women need, I don't think uh, that serves anybody. And I think today in this crazy feminist narrative, we're also forgetting what women need. You know, women are busy uh, trying to succeed and be just like men, but they're not taking care of their relational sphere. Um, in terms of how important it is for most women, you know, most women get their satisfaction and their fulfillment from their close relationships, from their family, from, you know, their relationship with their husband, with their children, uh, with their parents, with their, uh, community and friends. But we don't talk about that. We talk only about career and how men are holding us back. And there's no, there's no harmony in that. There's no sense of, uh, cooperation and trying to, uh, work together. Uh, which is I a real shame. That. When I was a, a my, I had my, my daughter was at school and I was invited to careers night to talk about my career yeah. as a journalist. And much to the surprise of the woman who'd organized it, I, one of the, my main messages was don't forget to have babies, that children are going to be, <laughs> children are going to be the thing that will give you most pleasure in life. And I know you're not supposed to say that anymore, but that nothing compares. Careers, I've had the most amazing career. But it doesn't compare for me to the pleasure of raising my children and now I've got grandchildren. And, you know, no one tells girls that anymore, that that right. really matters. And, of course, once that was all they heard, um, but you would have thought we could have a bit more balance there in terms of 
talking about priorities. Right. I think that most women want that combination. You know, we want to have our creative pursuits, our careers, um, but we we also want to be able to incorporate uh, family life and having children. And, you know, the early years are uh, very strenuous, but being able to juggle a career alongside that and maybe develop it more uh, when the children are older, you know, and finding that rhythm and that balance that allows us to have the best of both worlds. I think that we're living uh, in a world today that really offers uh, amazing freedom to women where you can organize your life in a way where you can have it all. You know, there's phases. Uh, you might not be able to have it all at the same time. Uh, but I think, you know, and it's almost tragic that you said you're not allowed to say today that uh, children are the most important thing. Uh, yeah. But that's most women's feeling, you know, when they uh, reach a certain age and they look back. Um, and I'm I'm listening to these women. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't have my aspirations. And, you know, that doesn't mean that women shouldn't chase their careers as well. But it's how do we how do we find this good balance? I live for five years in New York um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1980s. And I, I, I used to sit up uh, my desk was opposite a, a childcare centre and I'd oh. watch babies, these two-year-olds, you know, being picked up at six o'clock at night, dropped there at seven in the morning, picked up at six. I mean, it was just tragic. The low yeah. hours women had to work in their career. And that's one of, been one of the wonderful things about Australia. Australian women have been very stubborn and most Australian women still take time out of the workforce when they've got babies because they want to look after them themselves. I mean, increasingly the Cost of living pressures are making that really tough. And, you know, it's not always possible. But when they can, they do. And they've always said that's what they want. And they then tend, if they can, to go back to part-time work. And we have a very strong tradition of mothers working part-time when they have little children. And it, it's one of the real strengths in Australia. But, of course, it's amazing. the feminists are always complaining that we don't have enough women CEOs or we don't have enough. Where's, but I think we, we've got the balance a lot. You know, not more right than that than America certainly does. I mean, I think it's tragic how few women are able to find those, those flexible working hours and, you know, find a way of doing both. Uh, right. But caring for their children themselves. Why have children if you never see them? You know, watching these nannies in New York, you were there. <laughs> oh, for sure. In Central Park, you see the nanny weird. crew. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm uh, speaking with uh, Erica Commissar. Uh, in a few days, I don't know if you know her, but you know she's all about uh, the damage of daycare and how important uh, mothers are, especially in the early years. Uh, so we'll yeah, get think, into all of that. I really, really oh, agree. That's good. Yeah, that, uh, I think the long hours of daycare, the evidence is very clear. I once got into yeah. terrible battles when I was working full time for a newspaper, and I wrote about the way they were reporting the the data that was coming through on. Um, Influence on how the childcare was influencing children. There was actually a very big American study taking place. There's been longitudinal studies that have been going for decades. And in the beginning, they announced, oh, it's all great. Mums, relax. You know, the kids are doing really well. And then when the, those children reached sort of four and five, they started getting evidence that there were problems for kids who'd been for long hours in care from, for, as, from, as infants. Um, and um, one of 
um, the main other other journalists on the paper had initially celebrated this data, and then when the evidence started um, coming true about warning signals, she wrote the most appalling article saying, you know, Australian experts dismiss American data as not not applying here. And I wrote a column calling her out and said, look, five years ago you said this. We're talking about the same researchers. You're now dismissing them as irrelevant. Um, the poor editor had a terrible time trying to work out how to deal with this clash between their two top, one or two of their top journalists. But, I mean, gatekeeping in journalism goes on all the time. And these were, this was a woman who put her child into childcare from a very early age and she wasn't interested in any research that challenged that. And we see that right. in so many areas. Right, right. You know, you see the results of these children and it's usually uh, aggressive behavior, yeah. uh, emotional problems, you know, temper tantrums uh, into into an age where that's developmentally uh, not what you're used to seeing. Uh, you know, these yeah. fits, uh, higher cortisol levels uh, and, and later on, uh, much higher propensity for depression and anxiety. So these are uh, real, I mean, real issues and um, the yeah. early years have uh, have an effect. And there is uh, gatekeepers everywhere now, you know, yeah. trying to keep a certain narrative uh, yeah. going. And I can understand her, you know, just on her, the individual level, not know. being able to handle the guilt, you know, the cognitive dissonance of realizing that you've put your children in daycare and realizing that it's done damage. That's not an easy pill to no, swallow. No, People easy. will not to, die on that hill. <laughs> they don't, they realize they don't have any choice. To me, the issue that absolutely sums up what's going on here is think how we react when someone has twins or triplets. Mm-hmm. We all, I mean, you poor woman, how are you going to cope? We were terribly sympathetic towards her. I mean, these babies going into daycare, if they're lucky, will have a ratio of one to three in terms of carers. So those babies who, Babies aren't interested in other babies. They don't take any notice of them right, until right. they get about one or, you know, well into, well over the first year. And so they are competing with those other babies for attention. And I have a very good friend who's been in childcare for years and she, she's just heartbroken by it because, you know, these, they hardly have time to change the nappies to feed them and that's it, let alone cuddle them, which is what babies want, you know, individual right, right. attention. Not from necessarily from mothers, from fathers, whatever, but certainly not to be in there. We don't want to step competition to start age two weeks, do we? Exactly, exactly. They need their primary caregivers and uh, there's no way around it, uh, especially in the vulnerable years. Uh, I do want to shift gears and talk about uh, your your book, uh, which <laughs> followed couples that kept diaries of their sex lives. and you really found a lot of interesting things there about how people have, you know, how people who are married for years can still have vital sex lives and how uh, some people, some couples just stop having sex and women completely go off sex. So tell us what you found uh, doing this research, writing this book, reading all of these sex diaries of all of these different couples, what did you find was the general trend of what sex looks like after marriage? Quite surprisingly, what came through was a very grim picture for men. Um, 
a cry of anguish. And, and that was fascinating people because so often men don't talk about what it's like to spend their marriages begging for sex, you know, hoping sex will be doled out to them like little meaty treats to a dog, you know, this idea that they had to have to really behave themselves to have any hope of getting it um, is really humiliating for me. And they poured their hearts out to me. Uh, I mean, I had this fascinating situation because I, I got couples to write at his and her diary, if you like. I mean, they, they weren't writing about what they do in bed. They were writing about how they get there. So on any mm. one day, I had to keep a record of, did anyone try to initiate sex? If so, how did the other person react? You know, were they rejected? Were they, so how did they feel about that? And then I'd get his and her version of that night. <laughs> so every morning I'd leave out of bed to see what happened last night. It was just, they were all just pouring into me this. Oh, fascinating. Um, but as I said, I mean, the, as I absolutely expected, this message of the sex star man was the resounding message that came through for that book. And I've, of course, been hearing this most of my life. I mean, when I was a sex therapist as a young woman, that's what I heard most about. And you heard it from both sides. You heard it from the women saying, I've gone off sex. You know, I'm not remotely interested. I know he's really upset about it, but it's the last thing on my mind, you know, particularly from the young mo mothers, you know, women who have children crawling all over them all day. I mean, very rare that they maintain their sex life through that enormous upheaval in their, you know, their family life. Um, so the sex star men was the major issue I had. One in 10 was, was the other way around, the sex star woman, and they were absolutely fascinating. Tell us what you found there. Well, they were very cross, very cranky lot. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> that was the amazing thing to me about the men, is the men were so resilient. I mean, men who would put themselves up, you know those little doll clowns in a, in a fun fair, you know, where you throw the yeah. ball and you knock them out. I think men are rather like, they pop up and have another go and get <laughs> them again. I mean, there's a constant, constant willingness to put themselves up and be rejected again and again, but just in the hope of that intimacy. Now, I say that intimacy because women assume it's just sex. Oh, for goodness sake, go run around the old oval, have a cold shower. You know, they don't see it as a fail. Um, and men wrote so beautifully about that. The fact that it's not, they know they can go and masturbate. Any man can masturbate. It's not about getting their rocks off and getting sexual relief. It's sex gives them that connection to their partner in, in, a, in a way that nothing else does. And it was part of the expectation of a loving marital relationship, or even if it's just a, you know, a long-term living relationship, they expect to have a lover. And to find themselves living with a roommate or a sister is just heartbreaking for them and really right. deeply humiliating. Um, so that, that's the male resilience. But what I found with the women, they were absolutely shocked to find themselves rejected. And many women would be rejected a couple of times. They wouldn't go near the husband again. And they, wouldn't, they just couldn't cope with the idea of coming on to him and having him reject them. I can't understand that, yeah. though, because of, you know, the, the differences between men and women's sex drives. Men 
usually on average have a higher sex drive and yep. they maintain it over time, you know, throughout their life. Yep. And women have a lower uh, relative sex drive. Maybe it's a little higher, you know, when they're single and they're, uh, you know, looking for a partner and then during yep. that kind of uh, falling in love period. But then once kids come and hormonal changes happen and all sorts of things, then women do uh, lose their sex drive on average, not all. No. But I think that the reverse of that, when a woman still has her sex drive and the man doesn't, I think that would probably just, uh, you know, shock a woman and feel yeah. very personal almost, you know, like, are you not attracted Rejecting to me? He doesn't like my body, all that stuff. Women have Right, because we don't talk about, you know, the dynamics in sex a man wants to feel powerful, vital, you know, able to satisfy, but a woman wants to be uh, attractive. She wants to feel yeah. like he wants her. She wants to feel wanted. She wants to feel like she's beautiful at whatever age, you know, you want to feel that he desires you. That magic is still alive. And I really, you know, hearing about all of these uh, couples who weren't having sex anymore, whether it was the man or the woman, I think you really lose. Um, you know, first of all, source of connection uh, within the relationship that is it, it's it's hard to replace because it's hard to explain what sex is. You know, sex is a very animal, natural thing. It's um, it's our intersection between culture and nature, um, as some have put it. But I think that it really at the end of the day, when you look at couples who are having sex and those that aren't, the ones who are having sex, they keep this magic alive. They keep this sense of vitality and this almost youthful energy uh, and a, a real true desire for one another and a playfulness. Because when you've uh, you know, been together for so long, I'm sure that you need, to, um, you need to experiment. You need to play. You need to explore. You need to be open to something new. Um, and, and I think you can probably, uh, you know, uh, reach uh, a knowledge of one another and an intimacy uh, that's unparalleled if it's, uh, you know, outside of a committed relationship. Uh, so I think people lose a lot of uh, potential for magic there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I should say, I think there are couples who have, you know, just subsided into a pretty non-sexual relationship quite happily. Right. And when it's mutual, okay. I think I think that, that's fine. You know, the problem is when there's a disparity in desire and I one person feeling rejected. Um, you know, if you both rather eat chocolate or watch a good movie or read whatever. That, those couples just... those couples that are uh, both okay uh, with not having sex, uh, mm. what, what ages um, have you found? Does that uh, scenario usually happen? Is it after a certain point where both partners are okay or... Does it not matter? Does age well, not matter? You know, we have this. You mentioned the the gap uh, in desire, and and I mean, it's really interesting research showing that gap is increasing between male and female um, sexual interest, and and unfortunately, you know, we, women are more likely than they used to to go off sex, and they they're doing it earlier than they used to. I mean, I think there are really interesting cultural factors here. What, what do you think is driving that? I think we're sending such a strong message to women that they don't have to, they don't want to. It's all contingent on whether they feel like it. And there can't be any mm -hmm. obligation. 
You should never take one for the team. You should never have sex for any other reason than your own desire. And I think that's crazy uh, because, yeah. I mean, that, in fact, there's been, there was some really interesting research years ago by a Canadian uh, professor who did work with working for years with women who had no sexual interest at all. And she found there were situations for many of these women where they could experience sexual pleasure, even though they had no desire. If you, I always talk about, if you put the canoe in the water and start paddling and you're in, you have to have a, a willingness to be receptive. So if you think, right. oh, this is not going to work for me. I'm not interested. I hate this. Obviously it's not going to work. But if you think, oh, I know once I get over this initial feeling, I don't feel like it. If he's doing all the right things for me. So he has to know how to make love to her. And then desire kicks in later. And that was the interesting thing. You don't need desire at the beginning. It can kick in later. We didn't know that uh, when I was taught 50 years ago. We, had, we thought you had to have desire for a woman to reach orgasm. That's simply not true. And there are many, I haven't met many women who know that once they can, if they can get their head in the right place and, you know, work on turning themselves on in the sense of preparing, you know, at breakfast time, go and have a massage, do little things that make them more relaxed, that make them start anticipating sex, send him little sexy messages, flirt. You know, they deliberately work on getting in the right place because they want sex to remain part of their relationship. And that's on the one hand. On the other hand, women who say, if I'm not interested, it's not going to happen. Um, it doesn't happen. And that is the most, you know, the growing scenario in marriages today. Women having decided I'm not interested and sex just is off the agenda. I've heard from men who've gone for 20 years with no sex in their marriage. Absolutely hard. Not even, and of course what happens is if you're not interested in sex, you often don't let him near you. You won't let him give you a cuddle because you think, oh God, he'll plague me then, you know. Um, oh, wow. you, you push him away you, and what that's like for men to live, to sleep next to a woman that they still desire night after night and never be even allowed to look at her. I mean, it's absolutely tragic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the point that you made about uh, sex drives and sexual desire, most women don't realize that there's a difference between spontaneous desire and responsive desire. And I think that's what yeah. you're talking about, the yeah. fact that uh, women at a certain point, uh, you might feel less spontaneous desire. You might... Uh, experience less moments where you think to yourself, oh, I'm horny. You know, that might happen less. But that responsive desire, on the other hand, if you get started, uh, you know, things happen, your body responds, and then uh, that desire does wake up. Uh, so that uh, kind of motto of just do it uh, in this situation, I'm sure yeah. a lot of angry feminists are going to hate us for saying this. Um, but but there's there's good that comes from that. You know, you oh, can yeah. enjoy yourself. Um, after, you know, if if you, uh, you know, open yourself up to the responsive uh, desire. Also, you know, it's it's even it's totally not done to talk about any sense of obligation to your part yeah. sexual life. And you know, that's part of this whole cultural story. Once, about that. Yeah. About that. I'm. I'm. I'm Sorry. very interested in this. I'm very interested in this because we don't like to talk about uh, contractual 
obligations anymore. And the fact that marriage uh, is a contract and uh, you make vows uh, and you commit to life. You know, this is a big endeavor, uh, but you are committing to being this person's world. Uh, and you know, and they're your world. And the fact that we have forgotten that we have uh, true responsibility towards one another and the fact that if you want a marriage to succeed and a lot of talk of polyamory and open relationships and, you know, maybe monogamy uh, isn't natural for humans and all of this nonsense. If you want monogamy to work, if you want marriage to work, there are certain ingredients that it needs, you know, to flourish. And the fact that we don't talk about these um, these obligations because it sounds, uh, I don't know, old and stuffy or it sounds like we're telling women uh, that they need to, you know, surrender to their man uh, whenever yep. he wants. And that's not not the case at all. And we're not talking about, uh, you know, distributing women to men uh, to have sex with them. This is your husband that you picked, you know, yep. you you courted each other and you know you went through the dating process and you moved in together and you got engaged and you got married and you had children and you know this is your person i'm not forcing you to you know to associate with anyone that you don't want to here yeah. how many women talk about you know this is what i want and this is what i need for my marriage ask men what's missing from their marriages the major factor would be more sex that's what's missing for most marriages and yet we're not even allowed to discuss that obligation right. to a man's sexual life, his, his sexual drive. Um, and it's so weird the way we isolate out sex from everything else. In a, you know, we cook meatballs for, for him, even though we don't like meatballs, but we think, oh, well, right. Okay. And everything else is okay. And you're, you're not allowed to give a man sexual pleasure just to, you know, for the sake for the sake of the marriage, that's that's not a lot, you know. But I don't think you always have to have intercourse. There are other ways of, you know, keeping your sexual relationship alive. I don't think you. And if you're getting involved in, in sexual interaction and it's not working for you, give him pleasure, you know. Right. And not it's not about buying him off. It's just about wanting to show him you care about him. And I think, you know, if you reverse this, if uh, we. If we reverse this into a language that, you know, women can resonate with, if your man doesn't show you any emotional support, any emotional intimacy, doesn't show you love and affection, you will become starved for that affection. You will become starved for someone who loves you and, you know, shows you uh, with words of affirmation or, you know, with, uh, with hugs or uh, whatever it is. But if the woman doesn't get that, she becomes starved, you know, for, for that emotional security. Uh, and, and, you know, men, men need sex more. Um, and I'm, I, <laughs> yeah. And I'm always, I'm always surprised by, by women who, who think that, you know, if they go off sex, that's just okay. Like the, the marriage can continue and everything will be fine. I don't know how they're not absolutely terrified of the consequences because, you know, some men will cheat. Some men will go into porn. Some men will just resent you, <laughs> you know, and be yeah. bitchy to you because they don't understand why, uh, you know, you're not showing them that love and affection anymore. Uh, and and 
I I think that we we oh. all, we also take power away from women here in this paradoxical sense, right? But the fact that men have a high sex drive means that women have power, <laughs> you know, and we don't talk about that. But the fact that, you know, you are the gatekeeper and that you can make him feel good, you can make him feel like a man, you can make him satisfied. Don't you want to, uh, you know, say goodbye to your husband at the beginning of the day when he goes out to the world and know that he is walking tall, satisfied man, you know, not looking uh, at, you know, pretty young things uh, as he's like walking through the world. Doesn't that sound like a better deal? I'm I'm always surprised by the yeah. the rhetoric around this, and yeah, no one's and the fact forcing that they you. And they're really irate at the idea that he might stray from the marriage, even in that circumstance. It's just extraordinary to me. After 20 years of no sex, I don't know which man wouldn't, right? Oh, and, right. and that's putting him, yeah, and and that's putting a man in a situation where, God, you know, that's an impossible situation. They write to me all the time in that situation. And most men don't want to have affairs. Most men, particularly men with children, are terrified of the marriage breaking up. They're terrified of losing their children. I once had a, I used to have a chat thing on my, um, I don't know what it was, Facebook or whatever I had at the time. And, and there was this, and I got people to write letters and comment on each other's letters. And a man wrote this tragic letter saying, should I stay or should I go? And he hadn't had sex for years and years, and he had children, and it was precisely that dilemma. Do, should I risk losing my family, or do I stick, stay in a marriage where not only is there no sex, there's no intimacy whatsoever? And it was incredible watching all the, reading all the other men's react. I mean, the great divide between people who had left, perhaps a marriage like that and found that was worth it. Others who would never give up their children. I mean, that, right. think of that powerful situation. Men will cut, lose an essential part of what, it's not, what it is to be a man because they're so afraid of the woman walking out on them and taking the kids. I mean, whoa, what have we done to men? I tell you, it's something really funny. My book was published you know, in about 15 countries and including Argentina. And I got this phone call from an Argentinian journalist saying, can't believe these Australian men. She said, hey, would a man in Argentina, if he was, you know, presented with a situation where she wasn't giving them any sex, wouldn't stay for one, you know, he'd be off, he'd be having an affairs, right, whatever. And they just thought Australian men were in deep trouble in the way that women are walking all over them. Of course, America's exactly the same. Yeah, America is the same. And, you know, you see these couples sometimes where, um, you know, they're in their 50s. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, like people I see in the airport when I'm uh, traveling in America and these couples that they don't have any more sex appeal between the two of them. They've lost it. You know, you can see they're, they're almost sexless beings uh, and they regard each other in that sense. And it's tragic because you lose you lose uh, your your vitality. You know, you lose this really... Yeah. Um, mysterious kind of energetic force, and I think that uh, you you miss real chances of connection because this isn't some you know woo woo kind of psychological emotional connection only. It's also physical and hormonal, and the fact that you know you release oxytocin during sex 
that bonds you to one another. That makes that person for you a different entity chemically. The way you experience that person, the way you perceive their face, the way you perceive their smell, it's a different person for you because you're constantly bonded to them in a sexual way, in an oxytocin promoting way. And people miss that. People lose that. I always have to say, not everybody. You know what? That's true. We haven't spoken yet about uh, couples who do keep their sex life very much alive uh, into well into you know their 60s, 70s, and beyond. Uh, and you have gotten some amazing diaries about couples like this. So after you know we spoke about uh, where sex drives can go wrong uh, in marriage, yeah. tell us about these amazing couples and you know what what they had in common. Yeah, um, oh, there was one classic couple who wrote to me. And I couldn't, their story was so interesting that I went to visit them and they lived on the other side of the country and I spent a whole day with them and it was just fascinating because they put such a lot of effort into keeping things interesting. And, um, in the, so every evening she would go and, you know, she'd have a shower early evening and then she'd put on, she showed me this drawer full of sexy lingerie, you know, beautiful bits and pieces. And she put on one of these stocking stilettos. I've just lost my light here. Um, and that's all. And she'd spend the evening dressed like that, you know, walking around, cooking dinner, whatever it was she was doing. And, um, and you know, it, I said to her, every night that you do that, I mean, you think she's doing it for him. And she said, no, 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 it's for me. I can't bear just putting on an old track suit and feeling like a slob. I want to be a sexual woman. It's for me. And it was this mutual investment in wanting to stay sexual that was absolutely overwhelming with them. And they'd done lots of things, lots of exotic things of all sorts. But it was just fascinating because they, they were well into their 70s at that time. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But it's amazing. I, you know, first of all, this uh, ceremony that they had around it, which is interesting because, yeah. you know, at a certain point, I guess that having having a way to get into that mental space, into that physical space, even with yourself, you know, she had this whole ceremony before he even got home where she yeah, was yeah. feeling sexual and beautiful yeah. uh, and, and um, you know, feminine and domestic and cooking for him. But she was tapping yeah, into yeah. all of that. He, he wrote to me and said, I really love it when she shifts the sprinkler or hangs up the clothes. It's this idea of half naked in their backyard, you know, doing all this stuff. And there's a bit of extroversion in her, you know, she was a bit of an exhibitionist. Anyway, I mean, it was just this extraordinary thing of how varied people are from right. people that wear, you know, really miserable part of their lives to people where who make it such a special thing. And it was an absolute privilege to be part of the, their stories, to learn about what was going on for them. That's mm. really beautiful. What, mm. what have you found in terms of what these couples have in common, uh, these couples who do keep having sex versus the ones that don't? Is there personality traits that pop up? Is there something in terms of the quality of the relationship? My work was mainly... You know, just these collection of people with their diaries. I want, I didn't have enough of a sample to work out, you know, what's right, in right. common here. It was, they were all unique. And that 
that was what made, I think it made it very entertaining reading that you could, you know, get into the door, bedroom door and see what was actually going on. Um, right. right. And seeing how people are experiencing it and how they're thinking about yeah. it. And how, how they both felt, how he felt and how she felt. You know. yeah. I still run into people who were part of that diary group. It's fascinating. That was that's well, 15 years ago now. Hmm. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. I think yeah. you can uh, really discover a lot of things that way when you just yeah. let people kind of, you know, uh, let you into the world. Yeah. It's yeah, really well, amazing. I've had that all my life. It's been amazing. <laughs> I mean, and the good and the bad, you know, the, the sex stuff was the fun stuff. I suppose my life now is much more consumed by because oh, my son's just been put in jail on the false allegation. Oh, wow. I mean, whatever it is, it's an absolute tragedy. And sometimes I wish I was back in the good old days with somebody, yeah. about, you know, who is getting rid having a good time in bed. Now it's about keeping, keeping people out of prison, which is well, stopping them committing suicide. I think it's such important work that you're doing. Uh, it's really, really important. And, you know, bringing this message into the world um and helping uh you know the sexual politics uh the relationship between men and women you know find its uh its balance and talking about the difficult issues talking about the imbalances in our culture today i think it's really really important work and it's brave uh because as you said at the beginning some of these ideas are not popular uh but yet they they're true uh you know so we we hold yeah. on to them uh, and I really, really yeah. appreciate your work. I want to give people a chance to find your work. Where can they find what you've been working on? Where can they find you? Well, the most important work I'm doing now is writing on Substack. Um, so if they just look up my name on Substack, they will see my blogs, uh, which are writing about things that no one else is writing about, believe me. And um, but I also have a website, which has a has a collection of videos i've got a youtube channel um right. all under my own name so easy to find and my long history of articles and videos and podcasts and so on that i've made it's all there brilliant brand yes you have a lot of really great videos i recommend uh, everyone check out politics of cleavage uh a very popular one uh but you really uh you really give the truth there. So uh, I love that. Okay. Thank you so much, Bettina. This has been so much fun. Well, Ronnie, lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much.